is about mental strength and the ability to tolerate uncanny noise. Well, hi, good morning, good afternoon, wherever you are. This is Chris and, uh, well, a different beginning to today's podcast. And, uh, well, I thought uh, if we're going to talk about mental strength, we have to put it in context. Mental strength is the ability to hold a thought, the ability to hold a thought under duress. The easiest thing on earth is to hold a thought without duress. So cross your legs, sit on a chair and call that uh, meditation or some foggy experience of mental strength. But real mental strength is when you go to work and you're sitting there and somebody across the way is giving you the shits. Somebody has told you that if you don't get this project done, you'll you'll be 360 degree reviewed. If somebody told you that work, that if you don't impress everybody who's sitting beside you, around you, under you, over you, in uh, uh, what a great human being you are, that you're going to be diminished in terms of the eyes of your boss and therefore not promoted to that double the salary job that you really would love to have. And so we sit facing this, this trauma at work in a way that most Olympians wouldn't even comprehend. A monk would have no idea what to deal with. And mental strength put back into a, into a corporate context swings into a whole new arena and it elevates the topic 10 times greater than any sports person, any athlete ever has to comprehend. Uh, certainly beyond the realms of what a monk would consider to be fair game for meditation and what have you. So please, let's just break the nexus right now that A, you're an athlete at work, you're not. B, you're a monk at work, you're not. You are in the most extraordinary, complex, challenging, frustrating, driving, spiritually training environment that a human being could ever hope to be in. Hope or not hope. <laughs> so we need to understand what is mental strength. So in the context of work and relationship and life, mental strength takes on the same outcome as it would under normal circumstances. In other words, to the athlete, the ability to keep concentrating on the game in spite of the fact that they've got a cramp in their leg or their bike got a flat tire or the diving board is a bit windy or whatever it is, the, the, the athlete has to focus on a series of inputs which could or could not, might, might or might not distract them from what they're about to do. In other words, cause them to become stressed. So at work, stress comes or mental distraction or mental weakness comes from a diverse range of things. Firstly, let's get, let's get this clear. What you do at work is pretty damn important because what you do at work is is linked intrinsically to your sense of value. You have a value at home, you, you have a family or you had a family or you'd like to have a family and there is a sense of uh, parenting and value and, and, and what have you in your, in, in, in your home. But when you start to make something, if you make a barbecue in the backyard or a footpath or you make a baby or you make a house or you make a garden or even make curtains for the house or you make the floor or you make the back shed or you paint the place, you develop a sense of doing and that doing becomes quite purposeful or quite important 
in developing mental strength because it gives you something to do. Something to do which causes something to happen. And the doing and the happening become linked. And we, uh, in a corporate environment, it's such a shitty thing because what the customer says they want, what your boss says they want, what your colleague said they want, what you think you want, what everybody thinks they want along the lineage of delivery becomes a glitch, becomes a possibility for you to get it wrong. And so we start to hang on to, let's say the eight horses, they've all got reins, we're on the wagon, we're sitting at the back, we've got reins, got a, uh, you see it in uh, cowboy movies from the old days, they have about 10 reins in their hand and those each rein goes to a horse so they can pull and push all the different eight horses up front. And that's you standing there with your mental strength, hanging on for grim death, hoping that your client is happy, your boss is happy, the company that employs you is happy, your team are happy, the people who work for you are happy, everybody is collectively happy that you've done the right thing. And so painting the house is nice because you paint, you finish painting, there it is, it's, it's, it's white or blue or green, uh, everybody agreed the color, everybody agreed the outcome. If you're an entrepreneur, it's 10 times easier because you're the boss, you're the employees, you're the one that interviews the client, you're the one that delivers the product. So it's not very complicated to be an entrepreneur, but when it comes to being an employee, this has to be considered to be one of the most volatile and vulnerable uh, spaces for mental strength in the world. And yet it's needed most here. So let me talk today on this podcast about mental strength purely and solely, not for an athlete, not for a monk, not for mums and dads at home doing the, the, the house and being parents and making barbecues and paths and mowing the lawn and, and, and cooking dinner and whatever it is. Let's talk about going to work as an employee of an organization that's bigger than you. That's number one. Two, you're not the head. So we're not talking here in this podcast about the CEO or the CFO or the chairperson of the board. We're talking about somebody down the pecking order. Senior partner, partner, director, associate partner, 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 partner of a partner. Something inside an organization where you aren't the end, end decision maker. And therefore, you're trying to get somebody to agree that what you're about to do is exactly what they want. That becomes fundamentally important. Number two becomes fundamentally important that you'll have a customer out there. Now, whether you're selling property to that customer, whether you're delivering a building to that customer, whether you're delivering machinery or um, newspapers or whatever it is you're delivering, the customer has to, at the end of the day, say, that's what I wanted. And you are producing for that customer exactly what they want. Even if it's not exactly what your company said it would deliver, if you go over and above or beside or under because we're all personal and the customers are all personal, all human beings, everybody wants something a little nuanced. Let's also consider that you have a team working with you, for you, under you, uh, and you're working beside that team and some goose somewhere in the, along the line said, let's measure you based on the 360 degree uh, performance appraisal, which is the dumbest thing ever put on this planet, which says you've got to make people like you and enjoy working with you, as well as be productive and satisfy the needs of the customer and the, uh, and the boss. So now you've got this diversity of what is called mental strength, because you're trying to please many different facets of the business, including, and most importantly to consider in this equation, you. So 
In order to get mental strength, there are four things that I'm going to talk about today that will give you as an employee the ability to have mental strength. First one, and most important, is a degree of spirituality. What do I mean? Spirituality is the ability to be flexible. Flexibility means that you aren't fixed in a personality that you think is the role you need to play in the job. For example, uh, I know a lot of people who uh, I meet them in coaching and they're really cool, lovely, really fun, laughing people down the beach. But when I get feedback about how they perform at work, they're a bastard and they're tough and they're mean. And suddenly what we've got is the perception that we need to play a fixed role in our workplace in order to uh, generate an outcome. And that's like, in a sense, we get so stiff and so uptight about failure or about not getting it right that we start to um, script ourselves into a role that uh, it may not give us the, 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 the optimum think thought process to cause the outcome we want. So the first and foremost thing about mental strength inside an organization, which I call spirituality, but you might like to call flexibility, and that is to agree with anybody's comment about you. Someone says you're an asshole, yep. Someone says you're brilliant, yep. Someone says you're lazy, yep. Someone says you're, you're a diligent worker, yep. They all have to take the same impact or the same volume to you. If you suddenly rise up when somebody says you're the, the, the most amazing person I ever saw and you rise up with that, then you've lost flexibility because now you've started to pigeonhole yourself into one of those little mailboxes and say, this is where my mail goes into that hole. And if you put it in the wrong mailbox, I'm going to be really disappointed. Um, and so it's really important to be flexible, to say, I am a multitude of characters. I can be a multitude of characters and people will perceive me as they see fit in a multitude of characteristics. I think that flexibility, the ability to morph between people's opinions of yourself comes from a sense of knowing who you really are and knowing that you can't control everybody's perception of you to the degree that they won't see a diversity of you. So people look at us with a mirror of themselves. So if they're in a grumpy mood, they think you're grumpy. If they're in a happy mood, they think you're happy. And we generate, in a sense, an environment around us. So a, a sad person will generate around them a sadness and they'll say, geez, everybody's sad today. But that's not true. They are sad and they've generated this mood around them or they've generated a perception that everybody else is too. So you can't control that stuff. And what you need to do is be able to morph in and out of it not necessarily attach yourself to what people say because someone says you're an asshole, you go, yeah, okay. You, you, you're not uh, welded to it. You don't go, oh, yeah, yeah, me, I'm totally, yeah, yeah, you know, you're so right. I, I'm, the, I'm just the biggest asshole ever been. You are so, you don't hammer that nail into the concrete. What you do is you simply let it come, let it go, and don't react to it. And that's the key to flexibility, the ability not to react to what other people are drifting through in the course of their day. That's number one in mental strength. Number two in mental strength is the ability to focus. Now, meditation is one of the processes that we learn to focus because what it basically says in meditation is the harder you think, 
the tighter you think and the more focused you are on a thought, the worse it is. And so instead of being in a got-to space, which is fight-flight, what we're advocating here is to come to a love-to place in focus. Focus means you love what you're doing, you're doing one thing, you're focused on that thing, you're not distracted from that thing, you might be multitasking, but in, in multitasking, you don't necessarily do two things at once. You do one thing and then quickly shift to another, to another, to another, but you bring your focus 100% to wherever you are and what you're doing. This avoids this uh, presenteeism uh, problem that the world is getting more and more of at the present time. People are coming to work, but they're still at home. Absentee is where you stay at work and you want to be at, stay at home and you want to be at work or you stay at home and you don't want to be at work. That's absenteeism when you're away from work. But when you come to work, but you're not really there, presenteeism is becoming what I believe to be the single greatest problem in productivity in the workforce in the world. And it is solved and it's caused by lack of mental strength. It's solved by mental strength and the solution in mental strength that solves it is learning to focus. That means you bring 100% of you to 100% of what you do while you do what you do. When you're not doing what you do, you bring 100% of you away from what you do and you stop doing. So the ability to stop and the ability to start become a foot pedal, foot on the brake and a foot on the, and a foot on the accelerator. You only push one of those down at any one time. If I was to say what's the generic quality of struggling business people around the world that I meet, uh, not only those that I coach, but certainly other people that I meet on a daily basis, is most people are driving with one foot on the brake just, just in case and one foot on the accelerator trying to go forward. And there's a lot of smoke coming out of the engine and the, off the wheels. And that smoke is where we're trying to go forward and do our job, but we're thinking about something other than our job or we're thinking about something other than what we're doing. And that leads to this presenteeism problem. And if you can solve presenteeism, you can solve 90% of the stress-causing behaviors and energy-sucking behaviors that just strip people of the enjoyment of their work. And that is that they're jumping from task to task. They're not fully finished the last one. They're jumping into the next one. And as a result of that, their mind and their body aren't working in harmony. And therefore, they're not, in, in, in my language, they're not turning up. Now, doing one thing, doing it right, finish it, get on to the next task. Do one thing, do it right, get on to the next task. And if you're a person that's prone to multitasking, which means changing what you're doing every minute or two minutes, and that's a pretty extreme thing because for me, that would be an agitating experience in my day. But I know people who love it, air-based air people. They love moving from thought to thought, from task to task. Make sure that when you go to a thought or go to a task, you're in it, you're doing it, you love it, you immerse yourself in it. There is nothing else in the universe other than the thing you're doing. And then you move to the next meeting. You're 100% in the meeting. If you find yourself drifting, what's the time? How long am I gonna be here? Gee, I'm hungry. Do something about it. Don't try and put it out of your mind. If you're hungry and you're in a meeting, stand up and say, I'm hungry, I've gotta eat something, I'll come back. If you're worried about the time, declare it to yourself. Stand up and say, guys, I'm really worried about the time. Uh, I've only got half an hour left before my next meeting. Can we wind this up 10 minutes early, etc., etc." You can do something about it. Now, in meditation, what they teach you is to let thoughts come and let them go. And they're only thoughts. 
when you get an, an, an aspiration or an agitation going on, such as I'm hungry or thirsty or I'm worried about the time or I'm worried about what didn't happen or I'm worried about hitting the target, you need to, you can't just let it go because that thing will waft around in the background and it will cause you to look like you're not present. It will cause you to look like you're in the room, but you're not in the room. The lights are on, but nobody's home. So what we need to do is to learn the second area of corporate uh, uh, mental strength, and that is the ability to focus, to turn up 100% in each of the single things we do in a day, whether it's multitasked or single-tasked, be there 100%, undisturbed, do it, do the thing, get it done, get out of it. Go do nothing. Take you put your foot on the brake. Go do nothing. Then come back. Do something. Foot on the foot on the accelerator. Hundred percent into it. No reluctance. No doubt. No uncertainty. Just get the bloody thing done. Do it with love. Do it with kindness. Do it with care. Get it done. Stop. Foot on the brake. Take a break. Get back. Do nothing. Come back in. But what we do in the, this era is we we say, oh, I'm going to have a break now. We grab our mobile phone, go out and answer emails. Or we grab our mobile phone and go and answer all the calls we missed. Or we grab, we turn to the computer and answer emails. And our off time isn't off. And therefore our on time isn't 100% on either. So the second area of mental strength in a corporate business environment is learning to focus. First one was flexibility. Don't get stuck on a reaction. Second one is learning to focus, which means turning up 100% foot on the accelerator Learning to take a foot off the accelerator, stick it on the brake rather than have the both feet on them at the same time. The third one is a clear goal. Now, this is complex. The company you work for has goals. The client you work for has goals. The team around you that you work with has goals. The colleague you, you need to recruit into this project has goals. So which goal? When you say uh, mental strength comes from having goals, which goals do you prioritize? This is such a dilemma for people. And I think it's very, very important to link it or sink it. Now, what I mean by that is to say, to understand that if you are not fulfilling your goals in a project or in a thing you're doing at work, you will automatically, subconsciously, without knowing it, in deeply buried in your life, in your behavior, you will start to sabotage what you're doing. And that's called, classically, mental weakness. But quite often what it's called is depression or mental unhealth. So we first and foremost, and this is a huge topic, uh, one that doesn't get really clearly addressed because it's all very Western and very mechanicalized, but What's a really important thing for mental strength in a corporate, complex corporate environment is number one, knowing your own goals. And those goals are both material. What are the things you want in life? They are also uh, holistic, which means there's seven areas of life and each area has goals. They're also very spiritual because they're an experiential thing. You want to feel something and have something. So the three layers of a goal are be something, do something, and have something for each area of life. Now, that little story that I just rolled off the top of my head after 45 years of doing human development came in, uh, it was spoken to you in about 10 seconds. But it takes about three months to develop your goals in a be, do, have sequence that sit well, 
feel right, contain the spiritual aspect of things, contain the material aspect, and link to behavior. And I think once we get this aspect of it done, it freezes up to link it or sync it. In other words, link our goals to what other people want and make sure when we're doing what other people want, we're knowing that we're fulfilling our own goals. If we don't feel like we're fulfilling our goals in whatever activity we do, no matter what it is, even if it's domestic, even if it's at sport, even if it's in dietary behavior, if we don't feel like we're fulfilling our own goals, even if those goals have been written in some uh, replicatable mimicry, sometimes our goals are not really genuine and we find it really hard to link it or sync it. The bottom line of this is to say that if we do genuine goal setting and we really know what we want spiritually, mentally, socially, in the, in the layers of life, if we know what we want to be, do and have, then it will be really easy to link it to what other people want and make sure that in giving people what they want, we get what we want. Now, this loop is sacred. This is very spiritual stuff because we give other people what they want to get what we want. We don't get what we want to give other people what they want. That flips it up the wrong way around. So now let's just talk about the last step. We've talked about flexibility being a really important part of mental strength because it means we don't react. We've talked about focus, which is the ability to turn up 110% in the things we do and turn off 110% in the things we don't do and have off time frequently. We've talked about goal setting and how important it is to get this part of our mental process right at work. And last but not least, is to have a Mount Everest. It's so easy in the world of trying to please people and in the world of aspiration to set up a, a target at the at the at the target at the end of our lives and say, I would like to be a CEO, I would like to be an entrepreneur, I would like to be a wealthy parent, I would like to retire, live on a beach. And all of these things uh, individualized choices 90% of them are reactive in other words I don't want this and I don't want that so therefore I do want this and I do want that but to know your Mount Everest or your, your Mount aspiring to, to, to know your Amada Blum as I call it in my notes to know your big mountain and to know that reaching the summit of that big mountain is the journey you're willing to pay a price to get to and know the price and that that journey to something is bigger than your family and bigger than your job and bigger than your career and bigger than the people around you. It is something that you would love to achieve in the entirety of your life, which makes you willing to make sacrifice. In the sporting world, in the uh, uh, world outside of business, those sacrifices are conspicuous. In the sporting world, you have to train your ass off Sometimes in a race you have to lose because you're just not ready to win. And those trials and tribulations, these sacrifices that we need to surrender to in going toward our Mount Everest or our Amma de Blum, um, those sacrifices are painful as all shit. And they sometimes make us question whether we really want to continue in and in this environment and therefore bring up this one big ugly bastard beast 
and the ugly big bastard beach beast is doubt. Doubts really hurt. And when you're at work and when you're in this corporate environment where people's emotions change, where sometimes your boss is not fully present, they're going through some of their own personal laundry, sometimes a colleague gets the ability to throw a rock at you during a 360 degree stupid review, sometimes shit happens that's completely unjust, completely unfair, completely unexplainable because it's human. And the times like these, you need to be able to drill down past your family, past your aspiration for material wealth, past all these things and say, what is my ultimate Amadablam? What is my ultimate uh, Mount Everest? What, what am I really, really, really trying to do here? Back in my old day of doing the real spirit retreats, and I did hundreds and hundreds of them around the world, with 30 to 40 people in them, I had a workbook. And if you would like to read through the workbook, it's an old thing, it was done in the 90s and therefore it's clumsy and silly. But in that workbook, there were three or four exercises that rocked everybody's world. The first one of those exercises is to write your own obituary right now. And that is what's written in the paper or what's spoken at your funeral. And to write it now as you would love to have it. And I think that Sometimes we write, Chris was a really nice guy and lived happily ever after and we're glad he's gone in the coffin, you know, piss off. Sometimes we can be a little bit blasé about it or sometimes we can sit down and say, Chris made a difference and he worked his ass off his whole life to help people open their hearts. And, and you can write an obituary which is, well, beyond the movies and beyond the scripts of... Uh, what other people want you to be, and it starts to become what you would love your life to be. The second thing, and that is a tearjerker, to share it with another human being on this planet. Another one of the really important exercises that we used to love in my Real Spirit retreats was to write the words that are going to appear on your tombstone. This is a hilarious thing because some people made uh, jokes of it. Uh, here he lies and he's bloody glad to be gone. You know, they'd say things flippantly like that. And I thought, gee, I, I think most of those flippant jokes are actually the truth. Some people just don't want to be here anymore. Some people really have lost their spirit. They've lost their soul. And they've, they just can't be bothered with a concept of having something written on their... Well, if you get cremated, it's not a tombstone, but whatever, it gets written on your, on your tombstone. I think uh, that exercise is a really important thing to go through in conceptualizing your own amateur blum. And lastly, but not least, we did an exercise which always surprised people, and that is to, to write down a story. And the story is, if I had 24 hours to live, what would I do? And of course, the funny joke is most people say, I would wish myself to have another 24 hours. So there's a sort of a joke about it. But if, if it was real and someone said to you tomorrow, you can do anything you want. You've got 24 hours to live though. Would you jump on an airplane and spend five hours of that time that you've got 24 hours left of flying to a remote beach? Or would you just walk out the front door and, and go down to the local park? Would you ring up your family and uh, wish them love and happiness for the future. Well, 
would you go to work and say to all your work colleagues, you know, come on guys, get your shit together, you're stressed for nothing. What, what would you do? And the important part of this exercise, and I think it's a really important part of the exercise, the debrief of it, and we used to do that in community, in group. When we share it, we ask ourselves, why are we waiting for the last 24 hours to do these things? Now, it sort of spoils the exercise if you go to this end point at the start of doing the exercise. It's much better if you sit there and do it and go, well, if I had 24 hours to live, I'd kiss the cat, I'd, um, I don't know, uh, take a long hot shower, I'd ring up my friends and tell them how much I love them, I'd, and then you go through a list of things you do and you go, wow, if they're so important, and I don't know when my last 24 hours is about to begin, as the people in the World Trade Center found out uh, that day. If I don't know when my last 24 hours begin, what am I waiting for? It's a very, very interesting question of what am I waiting for? Last but not least, the exercise we did was, uh, was another exercise, which was how long are you going to live? And what does it look like? As people start to write the story of their future into their 60s and 70s and 80s, they start to witness a decline in the quality of life they have. And with that decline comes a lack of enthusiasm to get there. And with the lack of enthusiasm to get there, there is an automatic generation of a sabotage process not to get there. It is in a sense manifestation of early death. 99% of people on this planet do not live to old age. And the reason is, firstly, they can't afford it. And that's a really big thing for a lot of us. The second part of it is they don't like the idea. I have a friend who said she would never grow old and got breast cancer at the age of 58 and passed away. And I have no doubt that some part of her passing was an intentional passing, although not deliberate. So what we say is 99% of people on this earth commit slow suicide. And I think we don't have to. I think, uh, you know, I've got friends, uh, family uh, and people I know who are um, much older than me, who are still active and having as much fun as they did when they were 20. But the question is, how do we manage ourselves along the way? And if we're if we've got mental health or we've got mental weakness, or we start to get stiff in the brain, hard in the brain, in order to get through things, then we are developing this slow suicide process and wanting exit and wanting exit stage left. I hope this uh, podcast has been fascinating for you. Um, as I do believe, corporate mental strength is a totally different animal to sport mental strength because the variables are so much more complicated in business and so much more messed up by the fact that we don't get to choose the group, the team we're in. We don't get even to choose whether we're doing the right or wrong job. We're guessing a lot of the time. We don't get to understand the dimensions of other humans because they bring their corporate self to work and they leave their personal self out of work. So you don't really know if they're being present or not. It's complicated beyond measure. I really do think it's the most spiritually uh, awakening environment that we can ever have on earth provided that we have the tools to work our way through it 
and hold ourselves strong with mental strength. This is Chris. Have a beautiful day.